0: You're listening to Early Doors Football Podcast with host Mark Roach and co hosts Dylan Kerr, Tom Watt and
1: Sherelle Casal, a For The Now media production.
2: Welcome to episode nine of the Early Doors Football Podcast. And we've got some great guests for you this week, including Trevor Sinclair, Oxford United manager Carl Robinson and a former Brookside actress. But first, it's time for
3: Highlight of the Week.
2: And the contenders include the Newcastle United takeover and from England's 5-0 World Cup qualifying win in Andorra, an outstanding display from Phil Foden, the performance of Katerina Mosel, the first woman to officiate a senior England men's game and the appearance of Andorra's 41-year-old sub, Ildefon's Lima-Sola. Plus, Ireland's 3-0 win in Azerbaijan, Sutton United's 4-3 win against Port Vale in League Two, the two-all draw between Manchester United and Manchester City in the WSL, Liverpool's 2-0 win at Sheffield United in the Women's Championship, and Sporting Calcer's 6 3 win at Loughborough Dynamo in the FA Trophy, including a superb free kick from Jake Gosling that even Phil Foden would have been proud of. And you can look up Sporting Calcer on Twitter if you want to see it. But our highlight of the week is this. Will it happen here for Scotland? It's John McKinn to float it in!
4: Scotland comedy! This is big! This is
1: huge! This is massive! This is Scotland three! Israel two! And this is the Scotland way! You just have to
4: go with it! Oh come on, listen to this please. Absolutely brilliant here. And you know something's no more than this here? Absolutely
5: tremendous! Absolutely magic! Delivery! From again, mr. Pop. Look what it means to McTominay. What a minute to love, I don't even know who scores it. There's a That's
2: McTominey off his chest. Brilliant! Yes, courtesy of Sky Sports. That was Scott McTominay's stoppage time winner as Scotland came from behind to win 3-2 in their World Cup qualifier against Israel. And that was our
3: highlight of the week.
2: And now we're joined by Trevor Sinclair. Trevor, welcome to the Early Doors football podcast. Great to have you on the show.
4: Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, really excited. Obviously, doing my old mate, Dylan Kerr, a favour um, down in South Africa. He's asked me to do this. So, yeah, happy to be here.
2: Uh, um, on that note, I'm going to hand over to, to Dylan now to uh, take it away. Off you go, Dylan. All right, Trevor, all right?
4: <laughs> yeah, really well, thanks. How are you, pal?
2: I'm always good, always good to see that smile on Twitter
5: every morning. Got, you know, blinkers uh hat.
4: Yeah, I've gone a little bit street tonight because we're going to the cinema, so I'm gonna gone a little bit like you know, Looks keeping like it nice and humble. dancing. <laughs>
5: Not again. <laughs> no, listen, it's fantastic you've joined us, and you know, um can't thank you enough because it's it's you know it's a football. It's just we just chat about football and you know one of the things and I've just been saying to tom when you were when you when you were off air you know the last time I saw you was in Dubai you know when you know you you were living there I was en route to Vietnam and you know from 1992 when I come on loan to blackpool I mean Trevor sinclair was just starting his career and actually couldn't get in the team can you remember that
4: yeah, I do remember it, Dylan. I was, uh, what was it, 18? Um, I was kind of, I was in the squad from when I was 16, straight away from when I left school. And it was one of them where I had some good pros around me, Ginge and Dave Bamber. Um, and and, and we, we were a good team in that division, in the old fourth division. And uh, we were vying for promotion. And obviously with young players, especially forwards, I think that consistency wasn't there with me. And uh, it's something that Billy Ayres and all the all, you know experienced pros tried to help me with, and I think if you keep on listening to the information and taking it on board, you eventually get there, and and that's what I did, and, and thankfully I, I got myself a place in the team. I had a good season, got promoted the following year, and then uh, got the big move to uh, Queens Park Rangers.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I've just said to Thomas, you know, I became you know a better defender in them three months on loan because I had to match you, I had to play against you. You know, I know, and you're a little, was a
4: nightmare, wasn't
5: well, no. <laughs> I mean, to try and kick you was bad enough, but to try and catch you and kick you was even a nightmare. It was even worse. But we did have, and we had some great characters in that dressing room. We had some, I mean, Briggsy, you know, got Rodders on the right wing, you've got Wee David Ayres on the left wing. I mean, Briggsy were the first pick in every five-a-side team. You know, <laughs> you I know? think I
4: think Briggs I think Briggsie had been told by the gaffer to stay away from me, not mark me, which I was absolutely like. I was praying, thank you, God, because he was an absolute gentleman off the pitch, but on the pitch, oh, well, I mean, in in games, I see him in the dressing room putting vaseline on his elbows and on his protruding forehead, and I just used to think, oh, I'm I'm so glad he's in my team. Yeah. <laughs> Funny you should say that though Dylan Because I've just been speaking to my lads My lads, but one, one of my lads is a first year pro Sky and he's a defender yeah. And my younger lad is a first year scholar So there's a couple of years between them And at times they train together So the uh, development squad uh, Which is Sky's year Sometimes the younger lads get, go into that group And train together And the young lad is a little bit like me He's cheeky, he's got a little bit about him And he nutmeg Sky today uh, In training and I heard him talking to his mum earlier and, and he said, I'm not Megged him. But then he comes straight through me. And I was thinking, oh my God, stay away from each other. Bloody injuring each other. But yeah, I mean, I was like, I had personality. I've, obviously I've been to Show for two years with the likes of Andy Cole and, 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 and top players who ended up going to going on to make it, Chris Making, Gary Flitcroft. And I think we had that resilience, that give us that resilience when we was there and coming into a Blackpool like, senior team and training day in, day out, we were taught or we kind of learned in that two years living away from home that if, if people start coming through you, you've got to deal with it. And actually, if you can get a, a little dig back in them, they might show you show you a bit more respect and, and and just let you get on with what you're doing. And yeah, no, I appreciate that, Dylan. I was it was I enjoyed it and it, obviously it was a massive learning curve for me playing against like, you know, experienced professionals like yourself. I didn't realise how old you were, you're quite old, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs>
5: I'm still 21, so don't don't worry about that. I'm still <laughs> running. I'm still still keeping Good my man on the beach though every morning now. So I do 10k's on the beach, Indian Ocean blowing, uh, the wind blowing, perfect,
4: beautiful. I did a lot of running. I did a couple of marathons in Dubai, um, but I used to run every day. And like you, I was next to the um, the Arabic Sea. It's it's not quite the same when you've got the Irish Sea in living. It's uh, when the winds wind wind and rain in your face, and it's like five degrees, it's not, that's why I'm on the CBD oil, because my knees are bloody creaking
1: <laughs> Trev, just no, what's it... it how are your boys getting on with with Black... I just get the feeling Blackpool must be a good club to be out at, at the moment it is, you know, I, I don't know what people expected in Blackpool but you know, they're, they're putting on a good show in the Championship mate it's, it, it does feel like for all the <laughs> kind of history that's gone it is a club that sort of found itself again a bit
4: yeah, I have to agree with you, Tom. Um, I've got a little bit of a mixed view because I've got an older lad who plays in the Northern Premier League for Bamber Bridge, and he's 20. And when he was at the football club, they were all in the academy together. And when he was at the football club, it was a shambles. It was under the stewardship of uh, Owen Oyston. There was no funding. There was the coaches, you know, yeah, it was. But now uh, Simon Sadler's come in. He's invested a lot of money into the football club, into the first team squad, into the facilities and the coaches, and the whole setup is completely different. And yeah, for Sky, who's a first year pro, and for Kobe, who's a first year scholar, it's a fantastic club to be in because he's a progressive manager. He likes working with young players, which he, I think he brought Sims over from Everton last year to, to win and in promotion into the Championship, which I feel was a year before they expected or which was you know, their objective. You got there a year, a year early by winning the playoff game. Yeah, but they're making, a,
1: they're making a fist of it, though. They're making a
4: fist again, of it. They've got, again,
1: the the Tom, boy Lavery up front is scoring every week and you've got a chance, haven't you?
4: Yeah, again, it's down to recruitment. It's down to, I think, the coaching style, uh, which uh, Neil Critchley's got, which he, obviously he was the under-23 manager at Liverpool. He understands how to teach players a certain way of playing. And again, this season started poorly for him. And just slowly but surely, the results yeah, yeah. start to come. And and actually, you're looking at the international break now. I think Blackpool would have hoped that this international break wasn't there because I think they've had four out of the last six wins. And uh, yeah, they're on a really good good run of form. He's he's one of I mean, there's a there's
1: a few about all of a sudden, aren't there? You know, people from the kind of background that Neil Critchley's come from. You look at you look at Steve Cooper, who did unbelievably well at Swansea for a couple. He's come he's come from from youth football, from under seventeens with England, gone to Swansea, and now you look—not well, in the forest not... of just—it's yeah. no, they've—they—it's almost like there's a kind of new route. There's a new breed managing. as well.
4: There's a new breed as well. I mean, you only have to look as yeah. far as Gareth Southgate, the, the England manager. Yeah, you know, absolutely. he was working with the 2021s, and I think it's that. I think it's that way of teaching now. You know, back in our day, um, and, and and Dylan will, will definitely concur with this. I mean, if you weren't doing things, I was told at times, I'll, I'll get you near to that wall in the paint. You know, it was a bullying environment. They didn't know how to help you. So they shouted even louder, teacups and, you know, all the rest of it. But I think now, because coaching has got better, I think they now have good strategies on how to teach players, not just demonstrations on the pitch. They'll go and they'll analyse it on the screen. And obviously, as people, we learn in different ways. And I've done my UA for A. Dylan will understand what I'm talking about. All players learn different ways. Sometimes you need to show them. Sometimes you literally need to walk them through it. Others, you can show them on a screen. Others, you can show them on a board. But I think this is the progressive way of coaching now. And I think this is the way forward because, you know, you you and I know when we've been in situations where someone, I mean, you can smell the breath and you can, you know, there's sprays of spit coming on you, that's shouting at you so loud from so close. That's not going to help anyone. And I think now the way that coaching is going, thank God, you know, I think we can start teaching our kids how to play a certain style of football, w- what shape you want them in, and, and you can teach them that. And, and actually, footballers are becoming more academic anyway, and they're taking it on board more.
1: Yeah, and there is a, you get the feeling there is a lot more kind of attention paid to working with the individual, rather than, you know, there's a group in front of you, obviously collective. there's a group. But, you know, there's and I just wonder, does that feed into the academy? So your boys now... Getting much more, because you, you'll remember your own experience, even at Lillishaw, you know, even yep. when you're talking about the kind of best of the best. But still, it would have been much more sort of, right, you lot, this is what we're going to do. Whereas these days, it does feel like there's much more attention to individuals and what an individual needs to develop.
4: Yeah, I think every week. Um, I know that's my my middle lad Sky comes home and he's he's saying I did some individual work today so that'll be working on defending defending crosses defending one-on-one situation in wide areas and specifically going down right you've got you're playing right back you've got a right-footed left winger where you're going to show him in and around the box and it'll be in general, you show them inside to bodies, but obviously when you're getting in and around the 18-yard box, you show showing them outside because you don't want him coming in on his favoured right foot and getting his shots on the target. So the, I think it's getting a little bit like uh, the NFL where you're getting specific coaches, for specific, uh, specific uh, positions on the pitch. And yeah, it's great because it's a great way of learning. But then as a collective, you've got to do all the old stuff, the old-fashioned stuff that obviously works, your fitness work, your strength and conditioning, uh, your workers' pattern of play in possession, out of possession. And, yeah, no, as a coach, I think Neil Critchie's got a, a good load of people around him. One of my old teammates from QPR, Paul Murray, just took on a, jo- a job at Blackpool as well. Um, okay. So I think he's head of recruitment. So, yeah, no, they're moving in the right direction. I'm really pleased because the town was down. You know, Blackpool as a town, it's people, the community was suffering wow. under the last under the last, donor which i've got a, a lot of time for him because he helped me out immensely when i was at the football club before the troubles began but the the actual town and the community was suffering so i'm pleased for them because i'm i'm there i see it you know i coach their kids and there was a lot of uh yeah there's a lot of disgruntled this very angry people and now the community's come together and yeah it's a, it's a great story to be honest yeah no, dylan,
5: absolutely was-
1: sorry dylan go ahead
5: no, just when, when he's, he's, he's saying that about the new owner, I was in, invited by the Blackpool old football network. Um, John Cross invited me to a game when the new owner took over. It was his first game when obviously yeah. brought brought the atmosphere around the club. I mean, there was a buzz about it. Every, everybody was happy, you know, and, and in that, uh, in that state, I think the, the game was 1-4-0 as well. You could see that it was like, you know, a new a new start, a fresh start and, and everybody bought into it. and. My social, on Twitter, on, on Facebook, on Instagram, the Blackpool fans that are now coming out and, and talking about Blackpool uh, again. I mean, that, 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 that's, you know, what I loved about it when I played, you know, when I was there for just three months in 1992. I would have yeah. signed if I had the uh, Yeah, they're really passionate it,
4: fans. Yeah, they, they are, Dylan. And just the first game um, that Blackpool played when Owen Oyston was, the club was taken away from Owen Oyston. I went there uh, like yourself. I was invited. It was seventeen thousand. They went one nil down quite late in the game, and the fans sang even louder. They wasn't bothered about the result. They were they were just so relieved, and and it was almost like a carnival atmosphere that they'd got their club back and the community was healed. So yeah, no, they, they are really passionate. You know, you talk about your Liverpool fans and your Celtic fans and all this. Blackpool, I've got a really really crazy fanatic fan base, and uh, yeah, it's great to see that they're happy and you know, they'll, they'll be enjoying the championship this year.
1: And you, I mean, you do wonder, you wonder if people kind of get, you know, you think about somewhere like Blackpool, Trevor, and there's been, obviously there was the whole kind of Western era and that, you know, the fan base was kind of split and it, it, it was ugly. It was ugly. Yep. Really, you, you look at the town, there's not been a, a great deal of good news come out of Blackpool as a town in the last 15, 20 years. You know, it's really, it's really struggled. There's a lot of kind of real deprivation and it's, it's a hard place to live, hard place to make a living, and so the football, the, the harder life gets, the more important the football club be- becomes. Do you know what I mean? So those that, 17, that's 000, typical, 000, Tom.
4: That, yeah, that's typical, isn't it? You look at Liverpool, you look at your inner city Manchester, you look at certain areas of London, and and where there's there's more homeless, there's more poor people, the standard of living's down. The football club is the hub. That is the hub of the community and it's exactly the same yeah. and that that's probably one of the main reasons a lot of people you know come to Blackpool the bright lights and all the rest of it. it's great in the summer but the summer lasts about four months the rest of it is yeah. a really tough town to make a living and I think that's why you get a lot of hardship there and you know there's a big drug problem in, 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 and mental health problem in the town and Absolutely. that wasn't being that wasn't being helped with the, with the state of the football club now the football, no, but the club, football, football
1: is almost, club now can help. The football club, the football club's doing well, it can help. And Absolutely. I'm not sure, you talk about kind of inner city, mansion, I, I'm not sure it is quite the same in the big cities because there are other, there's kind of other places to go and other things to do, if you know what I mean. There are, you know, whereas you look at kind of one club towns, places that are kind of been, have been sort of left behind, you know what I mean, have been that, I think it's in those towns, those kind of, you got yeah. another one just up the road in Fleetwood. Yeah. yeah, you go. 100%. What's good about the town? What's what's? How do we feel positive about this town? And you go. Yeah. Well, the football club, really.
4: Yeah, and it I mean, it was we had a great time at the club when Dylan was there. He's only there for a short time, but it was it was a, just a, you know, we had a relationship with the fans. You know, the real yeah, yeah, passionate yeah. fans. We'd go out and have a pint with him after the game. It's a shame that's been lost. I understand why it has because of the media and stories and all the rest of it. But we did have a fantastic relationship with the fans when I was at Blackpool. And being a young lad, you know, I was probably out in the town more than I should have been. But it was a it was a great time to be alive and be a pro. <laughs>
5: exactly, and we and we got we got the wrath of Billy airs, and that's that's something that you don't want to. You know, when he got angry, hey, that was that was that was not good to be when you got Billy airs uh, angry. You know, and no, it's a, it's a shame. No, but like I say, you, I mean Trev, I mean from there you've gone. I mean, you, 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 your career took off. I mean, you, you look the same now. You haven't got your dreadlocks. I know you've lost your hair now, but <laughs> same Trev. That's how freaking. You know, I don't know if it's Botox or you're getting, the, you know, you know, getting these fillers in, but you look brilliant, pal. And your career. I appreciate just, that. Absolutely. I mean, it's, been, it's a pleasure to to sit here after so long you know, when you were a young kid and I was on, on loan and, 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 and see that you still got that smile, still got that cheek about you, you still got that passion and that enthusiasm. And, and you know, it's, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just honoured to be with you and oh, Tom and kind. even you know?
4: Yeah, Dylan, you know what? I mean, I think it, I've got an academy now where I take on boys that have either been through good grassroots teams, bad grassroots teams, being coached by volunteers, usually parents, or been released by professional clubs the lower than a snake's belly and I think football's been so kind to me I'm from a council estate you know we had nothing I was you know one of the, the biggest highlights of me becoming a footballer is being able to buy my mum a house being able to buy my sister's house and I'm I, I, I can't appreciate football any more than, than I do and it's still my life now you know my sons are involved in it I work in the media it still gives me a livelihood now so For me, football really did save my life and give me a chance uh, to do something with myself. And, you know, obviously going on and playing in the Premier League, I remember being at Blackpool saying if I could earn 250 quid a week, which is what I was on for the rest for 15 years, I would be the the happiest man on the planet because I just love playing football. So obviously you supersede that you get different goals, but to actually play for your country and play in a World Cup, you know, I could never have imagined that. I dreamed of it but I could never imagine it was going to come true. So for me, you know, people say, oh, yeah, he should have done better or he'd done brilliant. It depends what perspective you're looking at my career from. If you see, uh, see my career through your eyes, where you see me at a fourth division team as a kid, you know, obviously, you know, a bit of ability, but I would long a lot to do, a long way to go. You might feel that's why you're saying what you're saying, because you've seen where I've come from. But other people might have seen me midway through my journey and think, yeah, he had so much ability at QPR and it never really materialised. It's all about, you know, what perspective. And actually, you know, I probably could have done better than I did, but the injury that I picked up at QPR was a real debilitating injury and, and I had to adapt my game, which, again, I just feel really thankful that I had the, the nouse about me to turn into a really fit, strong, technically good, tactically aware player and managed to get back to that England level.
1: Hey, hey, and you exactly, you represented your country at a World Cup. So let's just... Do you know what I mean? That's, it just put the line under it there. But I just, it did. The game did take you to some amazing places, Trev. But that, I'm you probably get fed up talking about it. But that whole kind of, you know, the injury to Danny Murphy, wasn't it? The, the way you got, you got your chance. Because for me, uh, it's not just football. It's kind of whatever walk of life you're in. Is one, you need an opportunity, and two, you need enough about you to take advantage of that opportunity. And if you. Item one, when it comes to the evidence, is Trevor Sinclair at the 2002 World Cup.
4: Yeah, That's kind, Tom. Uh, yeah, It was listen, it was one of them where all the cards, you know, I got all the cards just at the right time. Um, I remember actually prior to that, i played a couple of friendlies, one Nigeria. I think we played South Korea in a friendly as well. And it was just like, I had a stinker. You know, I was thinking I'm 24th man. I have a 23-man squad. I weren't feeling right. So I had a chat with Adam Crozier and I said "Listen, Adam, I'm feeling like the Grim Reaper, like I'm waiting. And Aunt Sven, I'm waiting for someone to get injured so I can go and take their place. Can I go back to to West Ham, train at Chad Relief? And if you do want, me, if someone gets injured and you want me to fly back out, I will willingly do that. Anyway, by the time, I think by the time I got to Seoul Airport, there was rumours that Danny had picked up an injury, got home, recharged the batteries, had a little cuddle with Natalie for a couple of days, flew back out. I was recharged. I was ready then, and I felt part of it. And then getting the opportunity against uh, Argentina so soon in that game, and us ending up winning that against the real fierce rival of ours. Um, and playing against Zanetti and all the rest. I mean, it was it was it was it was just all your dreams come true at once.
1: Yeah, because it were, and that was a proper World Cup, by the way. There were some there were some proper teams in that. And you, I mean, obviously, it's 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 another kind of England if only story. But yeah. that was, for me, that's a World Cup that really come, really sticks in the mind for the quality of the football we've got played. You know, that like that England-Argentina game, all right, came down to a penalty and one nil, and the whole kind of, you know, Beckham getting his revenge and blah, blah. But you, the, the, the level, the skill, the technical level of that game was just, you know, if you ever go back and watch bits of it, you go, hang on, this is really, this is what a World Cup's supposed to be. This is
4: the best of the best, this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. It, it felt like that Fantastic though, Tom. Time. You know, it felt like, I, I mean, one of the things I, I did when I came onto the pitch after about 15, 16, 17 minutes, whatever it was, when Owen Hargreaves went down injured, Yeah, I, I kind of had a little three second prayer to myself. Do mm-hmm. not let your country down because, you know, I was going, to, you know, Bex was there, Scolese, Butty you know, Rio, Sol Campbell, you know, Owen, we had top, top players throughout the side. And for me to, one, beginning of that 2001, uh, 2002 year, say, listen, I'm not going to dethrone Beckham on the right-hand side. I'm going to start playing on the left-hand side. So I had to yeah. learn a new position. It's a similar position, but I had to play on the opposite side. And then to have a good season at West Ham, and then to force my way into the shadow squad, and then to eventually get into the squad. And then I'm playing against the elite, the best of the best. I'm thinking, you, you better not mess this up now. And uh, yeah, I, I managed to I managed to start well in that game. Had a couple of runs at Zanetti. Got the better of him a couple of times. And that just settled me. And then once you once you're breathing out your backside, your nerves go out the we done. You know, you're yeah. doing your job then. And yeah, it was a really proud moment, Sam. It really was. And you know, my oh, family man. back did home. They are all going to the pub you really say early. In.
1: You, you've just said, I had a couple of runs at Zanetti. <laughs> I mean, that is, for he is one of the true greats. You know what I mean? Yeah. For me, you know, you know, people talk about Maldini, talk about Nesta, talk about, you know, the players who are playing in Italy, you just remember him, not just for Argentina, but for Inter Milan. What a footballer.
4: Uh, yeah, you see footballer. him now and, you know, I mean, Dylan was really kind before when he was giving me compliments saying I look the same. I seen a picture of him today and he looks unbelievable. He obviously looks after himself. I think he played over a thousand professional games. It uh, was at Milan. He, he, I think he's president of uh, Inter Milan now. He is an absolute superstar of the game. And, you know, you can imagine where his standards were and everything was done to a certain standard. And, you know, we probably set them standards by the time he was about 22, 23. And he ended up having a fantastic career. And it was a, yeah, it was a privilege a The old players look like that him. in Italy,
1: mate. They all look like that. I don't know what they get up to that They all play till they're
4: 45. I know, I know. Paolo Di Canio is the same as well. I speak to Paolo often on the phone and you know he he actually um he'll he'll post a picture on his profile or a video of him doing step ups jumps this that and the other you know and he's like the kind of old school rocky drills where he's just keeping it real (laughs) doing what's necessary but he looks unbelievable and what what i mean to play with him you know uh, towards like you know when i was back end of his career but when i was kind of playing at the best of my ability to play with him and link up with him i mean what a special talent he was
5: So listen, Trev, you just keep smiling, keep happy, and I will come and see you when I get the chance to come back to sunny old England.
4: Top, man. Listen, good luck over there, Dylan. I have to say, massive, massive respect. You know, you've gone, you go out to the south, the the, the far east to to, to manage. You're out now in South Africa to manage. You've already won stuff. I wish you all the best, man. Absolute credit. Well done, pal.
5: Love you, son. Listen, brilliant. And listen, I don't know
4: how you can play on the left wing because you never had a left foot. <laughs> I still don't. I about inverted
5: wingers
2: now. He'd be laughing these days. Nice to meet you, Trevor. Exactly. Thanks a lot.
4: Thanks very much. Appreciate that, guys. Take care. Thank, Thank you. Mate. you. God bless,
2: Bye. Bye. And now it's time to introduce Carl Robinson, the manager of Oxford United, and his, his wife Anne. And we don't usually get a, a couple on the show as, as guests, but... I was really interested to, to find that from both of you, being that uh, being a football manager is so intense, Carl, as, uh, as you and Anne both know. Just wanted to speak to both of you about, you know, how you find that work-life balance. So, Carl, could I ask you you first? It's, it's not a nine-to-five job, football, is it? It's very intense. How how do you,
6: think, man- how do you manage that? I think, Mark, I think you, you can ask the same question to me and Dan. I think you get two completely different answers back. Um, I think that the whole question is actually answered in the fact that I'm sat in my car outside a training centre about to watch our kids train and Anne's at home with our daughter, um, probably about to put the tea on and, and do all the amazing things that she does. And they're just sort of, you have to be so strong in, in, in who you are as a couple, I think, and I don't think any person, whether that be male or female, can be successful without the support of the partner. Um, and sometimes that freedom that, that you're given um, is part of the reason why you can be successful. But equally, sometimes that can override. You can sometimes do too much in work and you've got to be a little bit careful about that. And that's probably, if I, if I would openly tell you, that's probably where one of my biggest weaknesses is, is that I do... I'm an all-or-nothing type of fella and... Um, and look at that laughing at me and it's it's one of those situations where I, I do believe in if you're going to do swimming in life you've got to do it 100% um, and I know the support that I have at home allows me to be the best version of me
2: and Anne I'm going to ask you the, the same question but obviously really interested to hear it from, from your side as well
7: um, yeah I mean Yeah, I do sort of spend quite a lot of time at home and, you know, I originally moved down to Milton Keynes from the Wirral um, for Carl's job, you know, which is understandable to to keep our family as a family unit. And then, you know what it's like with football, it takes you all over the country. uh, But just to have a base, which enabled him to do his job, you know, close by, and then the next minute he's off in another club and then another club. But we've been really lucky, really, the past couple of years at Oxford United you know we've been sort of together even though it's only probably within an hour's reach it's still difficult because it's an industry where unless you're actually in it you don't understand the it's relentless it never stops and you know Carl's passionate about his job he loves the club um it's his passion football's his life um but you know, I think for me personally, it's you've got to have balance. You know, I am a mother, a wife, and I just love with work. You know, that can be something that, um, you know, football takes over. Um, you know, but equally, we're there to support him. Um, so, yeah, I'm being nice, aren't I? I'm being nice. Uh, and, and I think I'm, so I'm, ar- I'm
6: obviously... The big thing is about that, I think, that I moved down to Milton Keynes. It was outstanding. I was home every night at a certain time. But it's really weird how it works because you'd leave work at, say, 6 o'clock and you'd come home making your phone calls back at home. And I know that used to frustrate him. And the next club I went to was Charlton. And I was meant to go down. I was meant to stay over Monday night and Thursday, Friday. And the traffic was so bad. It was taking me four and a half hours in the morning to get into work. So I ended up staying down there like from Sunday till Tuesday night and then going back Wednesday night and then coming back Saturday. And it was impossible for two years. It it was really having a a drain on me Um, and had a massive drain on Anne, even more importantly, and more importantly, Jasmine. Um, And that's where Oxford was a a godsend to us really because I probably stay over two nights a week now, one or two, depending on how it's going. Um, It's sort of the best version. It's it's the best way, with it being 50 minutes away. I can get coming home is 50 minutes, but I can make my phone calls. So when I come in, I, I'm actually done. Um, we're on the reverse of it in the morning. It can take an hour and a half. So again, it's it's, it's a bit different to most people. They get a job in a city somewhere. They, they move their life there and the commute is probably at no more than 30 minutes a lot of the time. And that, and that's what they're going to do for the next 20, 30 years. For tomorrow I could be sacked tomorrow and I could be up at Carlisle. I could be at Middlesbrough. I could be, down at Plymouth, I could be in France, I could, I could be anywhere, and it's. A, sometimes there's an element in me that's a little bit jealous that we don't have that uh, family stability in in where we can grow our life. I know Anne tells me what's our plan, and I have a plan, but following a plan in my industry is almost impossible. Uh, and Anne, I
2: just wanted to ask you, um, if if Oxford have, have had a win or they've you know been beaten, um, do, do you notice a big Big change in, in Carl's mood?
7: 100%, 1 million percent Carl's mood. Uh, just a prime example, I did a big birthday party for him for his uh, big 4 0. And uh, I think there was a particular game that day when he got beat. I got all like family, friends outside. I got like music, balloons, everything really went out. All oh, hell for leather. And then the next minute, we lived sort of behind sort of like wooden gates. The next minute, you just saw his car coming in. And I've never seen his face so sad. And I'd put all my time and effort into this party because he lost. And I was like, oh, God. Mark, never- I,
6: Mar- I, 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 I drove around the corner. I could see the lights. We got beat 2-0 to Lincoln, first game of the season. And I could see the light. I thought, oh, no, she's going to party for me. And I parked the car for a minute and I was like, I might just reverse and go to a pub on my own. And then I thought to myself, I've got to go in. And then I was going in sulking, I was going in in a mood. And then I, my mum and dad were there and my brother was there. And uh, it was just, I couldn't get myself out of that mood. It was weird when we got beat in the playoff final. Um, All my nieces and nephews, they all watched it in our house or in the street. Um, And it was... All my family were there when I got home from it, and I just literally walked in, and my, my little nieces are like, what are they, little, 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 five, three, five, six? Mm-hmm. And they all come running up to you going, oh, Uncle Carl, Uncle Carl, and I just went, I'm going to bed. So it does have an effect because I love winning. Um, I, I have an addiction to that, and I and I, and I can't accept not winning. Uh, and I don't think the older I get, I'm getting any better whatsoever at it illusion
7: it was funny as well it it was funny as well mark um you know not long carl always has like sort of goals of like 500 games and 600 games and you know and he wants to get to a certain amount of games obviously in his career um but it was funny that you mentioned something the other week you were like oh my goodness look how many draws wins and losses i've had on my record and then the amount of losses was like, you turned around and said, that's how many bad Sundays you've had.
6: <laughs> and I thought, that is so true. Just for the record, Mark, the wins are a lot more than the losses. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Uh, and I just wanted to, to ask you, based on w- what you've said already, does Carl come home and talk to you about football what happened in the game you know we should have had a penalty etc etc and and the other question is do you listen
7: honestly when Carl was at mk dons for many many years i used to live breathe everything you know the ins and outs of every conversation the game the this it was on telly it was on the phone i used to know everything to come to a point after probably 10 years of going I really need to have my boundaries now. I need to sort of switch off. So I just sort of go, oh, okay, and sort of do my own thing. Um, but I love football myself. You know, I'm a big football fan. I'm a Liverpool fan. Obviously, follow Oxford United. It's a great club. But, you know, I listen, but then I don't get as involved with the finer details as I used to. I care. But I just sort of go, oh, how was the day? I've oh, actually been a penalty or whatever. And then I just move on because... It's so consuming of my time. You know Carl's job, and then also our daughter plays football. So you know I need to, even though I love it. Sometimes I just go, I just need a break from it for my own sanity.
2: <laughs> but it sounds like Carl, going back to what you said at the start, you've you've got that support, and you know that's so important to you.
6: Yeah, it's it's support from friends and uh, as well and. You know, also, our daughter's now 15 and she's been very good for me because I'll come home and she, she'll sort of, she'll come and go, Dad, you're rubbish today. Why would you play him or why didn't you play him? And she sort of makes me laugh very quickly. And she's, uh, we're very, very lucky with Jasmine. We're very, very lucky. She's she's an incredible human being and she's um, she's different in relation to the way she sees the world. Um, whether that's just the youth of today, I'm not too sure, but she sees it in a very flippant way. And sometimes that flippancy that she has can sometimes make you a little bit less serious about the results. Um, she's always got a knack of saying the right thing or the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, and that sort of takes you out of your mood. And I think it's really important that you do have them sort of people around you that, that can, that one, understand you and get you. Um, Over many years, I think on a Sunday the best way to deal with me is just to leave me and um, and then give me sort of, I have my own space and, and I can do my own thing on a Sunday after the defeat. I tend to find to come back around a little bit quicker. I find it hard after the defeat, having to do something for somebody else. That's, that's the selfish aspect of me, my personality, probably. Um, I can't believe I'm admitting, I'm admitting all of this and i probably writing it all down to bring it back up in an argument, but it, it is the best way to, to probably deal with it. And I think that's just time. It's like anything in life, the older you get and the more experience that you get and, the more you get to know people, they get to know you a little bit more. Um, and I think it's, it is get it is different now than, than what it used to be for me.
2: Well, thank you so much to both of you for, for coming on. And that's been a, a fan, fascinating insight, shall we say. And, um, you know, wish you well for the rest of the season, Carl, and wish you well for the thank rest you. of the season, Anne, as well. Thank
7: you. <laughs> thank well,
2: you, very uh, much.
7: Yeah, we, we've been, like, passing shifts at the moment. It's been busy for Carl yeah. and We've, we got told our daughter's just tested positive for COVID, so she's isolating. Uh, so Carl's staying away, hence him sat in his car in
6: Oxford. It's, uh, this morning, Mark, i brought the hotel in my bag. I've got an electric car that wasn't charged, never had it. I felt like another poor young song, wherever I lay my hat, that's my home. I was sort of... I've, not, I've actually got somewhere to stay now. I've got a flat for a few days, but I'm going to... It's just... It's just, this is just typical of the world that we live in currently that obviously the way COVID's affected so many families and I feel really like, I, don't, I feel like I'm moaning about something that a lot of people have been through an awful lot worse than what me and Anna have been through the fact that I have to stay away for seven or eight days um, is a very small small thing to put to one side for for the right thing to do with COVID and my, my physio is saying I can't go near my own daughter <laughs> but it's uh, hopefully she gets better and it's, this is the best time I see Anne. anyway she can't moan at me through the phone
2: Oh, I can. Take care, Mark. uh, Thank you both. Really great to speak to you. And now it's time for part two of our series with former referee Keith Hackett. And this time, Keith, perhaps you can take us back to October 1990 and the 21-man brawl between Manchester United and Arsenal at Old Trafford. What do you remember from that game?
3: Well, it's obviously a big game, Uh, and what I learned from it was that I needed to prepare uh, in more detail. You know, I, I had this view, and I still have the view that, you know, when two teams come out to the middle, everything's even, and it's a clean sheet, but I really needed to know who the players were and how they reacted and acted. So I wasn't aware that there was any baggage coming from the previous encounter between Arsenal and Manchester United. I knew that Arsenal had had a problem with what was termed mass confrontation. And so as a result of that, I'm sort of quite happy the game's going along. I'm playing my usual levels of uh, advantage and risk, letting the players express themselves, giving a bit, taking a bit. Um, you know, I wanted them to know that they were in a game. Because as a fan, when I paid my money to watch a game, I didn't want to pay to watch the referee. So I had that philosophy. Low-key, in get involved. But as a big guy over 6'4", it's difficult to hide. So out of nothing, or what I thought was nothing, I've suddenly got 21 players uh, in a huddle. And um, I sit back. Well, I got in, first of all, as a big guy, I, I, I climbed in and started pulling the players away. I probably at that point missed a few things. I certainly did when I looked at the video afterwards. And as I'm going through that exercise, I'm actually determining who I'm going to send off. And and the numbers started getting a bit high. And I'm going, if I send four or five players off here, am I being fair to the remainder? Um, because I could actually have sent most of them off. And so I took the view, I think this is for the good of the game, really, at that point. I'm not going to send anybody off, because I think in, in my own mind it would be unfair on what I'd seen. Um, you know, I, I was brought up in South Yorkshire, and I'd refereed on the Northern Premier League when it was formed. So I dealt with tough games. And so as a consequence, I, I just stepped back and thought, this has gone now. It's calmed down. Everybody's ready and start play football. Handbags at seven paces. I'm not going to get involved. And I didn't. And then, of course, in my post-match uh, report, I put that there was a mass confrontation. And the may wished to look at it, which they did. And um, because I think they were concerned that a senior referee, as I was at that time, had had this level of difficulty they needed to make, um, if you like, hey, we're going to sort this. And they sorted it with the punishment of a deduction of points. Later in my career, I I sort of decided um, that there ought to be a better method. And so when I was boss of the PGMOL, I sat down and, and wrote a criteria. And that, and that criteria was, um, you know, the referee actually not to pile in like I did, but ideally to stand off and watch what was going off. That was the first thing that the assistant referees who you want on the touchline, they've got to be drawn in to get some balance of numbers. So, we, just, you know, it was assistant furthest away comes in and helps. And the one really near the technical area is the one that needs to be the last one on the field. And so the process was, if I would then, as a referee, carry out any reds, I would then ask the two assistants, are there any more reds that I've not given that you might have seen? And if there were, then those would be issued. And then I'd ask them, are there any yellow cards that I've missed? Um, Informing them who I was going to yellow card. And, And that process is there and remains there today. And, of course, the other thing is that, we also had a process where, if if two players were going to be sent off, if you remember, I think it was Billy Bremner and I don't know if it was Keegan, but there were two players got involved in a, after at a cup final, and um, we decided from that that the away team player red carded would go first, that you would hold the other player back to get a gap, and then you'd send the second one through. And I think that's, if anybody goes onto YouTube and looks at Chelsea-Arsenal 1996 Carling Cup final, in around about the 90th minute, getting up for the 90th minute, um, you'll see that uh, there was a mass confrontation. There were two, two red cards issued, two managers effectively sent off or returned, asked to return and reported. And then Howard Webb, the referee, asked his assistant, are there any more reds? And one player had gone a bit OTT. And so as a consequence, there was a third red card. And then Howard cautioned the two captains, almost in a token, calm down, and, you know, you've, you've let the sides down. And, and I think that is, is always the case, that there's, we have to learn through those experiences. And then we have to pass that experience on to others so that there is a, ideally a uniform approach when those things happen.
2: Thank you, Keith. And next week, Keith tells us a story about giving Carlos Alberto a lift to a game that he was refereeing. And now it's time for a look at women's football. And Sherelle, we've got a couple of big games in the Champions League this week. Um, Wednesday it's Juventus against Chelsea, and Thursday this week it's Arsenal against Hoffenheim. How do you think Chelsea and Arsenal will get on in those games?
8: I mean, it's very good games, isn't it? Champions League, it's fun, fun for the women to be involved in, especially um, you know from the UK. So tough games for both, I think. Um, Arsenal, I mean, they're on form. I don't, they've been unbelievable this season. So I do think Arsenal win, especially being at home um Chelsea away to Juventus it's going to be a tough game uh very tough game so yeah can't call that one <laughs> um however you know it, it's just great to be for them to be involved in Champions League um, and and you know they're getting more and more people watching the Champions League which is great but an experience for for the women playing so yeah Arsenal Chelsea Juventus I'm not sure
2: and, and League Cup as well this this week. Um, quite a few games on on Wednesday, and also there's there's quite a few ties with uh, WSL teams playing Championship teams. So, just some quick predictions on on these four on Wednesday. So you've got Liverpool against Aston Villa. Who's going to win that one? I say Liverpool because they they're doing well, good starts of the season, haven't they? And then Spurs against Charlton.
8: Do you know what Spurs? I'll have Spurs, but Charlton, you know, they are very good this season. They're very strong. So, But I would have Spurs tipping that. But it'll be a close game. I don't think it'll be a high-scoring game.
2: Reading against Bristol City.
8: But again, Bristol City have started okay, um, especially having pretty much a new squad and been relegated. So you would hope Reading, but it's going to be tough for them.
2: Well, I'd hope Reading because that's my team. But there you go. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and London Lionesses against West Ham. That's a London derby, obviously. What do you uh, what do you think about that one?
8: London Lionesses have started strong. West Ham have started extremely strong. So again, I've, London Lionesses have a very, very good crowd to their home pitch. So it could be a draw. It could be a draw and then extra time and penalties maybe, but let's see. But I can't call that one. It's too close.
2: And this one, this one is really interesting. Thursday this week, uh, Durham against Man United. Durham have... You know, had a flying start in the championship um, against Man United. How how do you see that one going?
8: Durham, in my experience, playing away at their ground is horrible. (laughs) Um, They're a very tough team. They've started absolutely flying. Uh, Man United haven't started as well as they probably would have hoped. Um, So, again, you know, I can see that as a draw. Durham are very, very hard at home. And, yeah, they're probably the underdogs in other people's eyes. But I wouldn't like to call this one. Hope Darren, you know, championship team.
2: <laughs> that, that's going to be really interesting, isn't it? See, see how those games go. And you've got a guest, haven't you? Do you want to uh, introduce your guest?
8: Absolutely, yes. So we've got Sam Bennett. Um, he is the women's under-17s coach at Burton Album FC. Can I just start, Sam, by asking you what, what your role involves?
0: Yeah, it's, first of all, it's great to be on the podcast. Um, I've seen a few episodes, really impressed. Um, so as under-17s coach... Obviously, my main role is helping these young girls progress um, and hopefully get as many first teams as we can. Um, But also not just from a football side of things. Um, As Obviously, as a coach, you know, that role entails many things, Um, a mentor, leadership, you know, someone to talk to. Um, And that's, you know, what we try and do, try and help these girls progress to be the best they can be.
8: How important do you think it's for girls to have access to the right type of coaching at this level?
0: Yeah, so um, like I said, I think obviously in the last few years there's been a lot more coverage of the women's gut, go- the women's game in general, um, and obviously this has filtered down to girls grassroots as well. Um, you know, we we're for example at Burn we're all qualified coaches and we've all got our badges. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's such an important stage. I mean, obviously, same with, you know, men's football as well. The boys, you know, going up in the age groups. Um, our job, mainly for under-17s and under-18s, is to continue that progression and, like I said, get them ready for first team. Um, so, obviously, more kind of, t- um, more tactical than the younger age groups. Um, and we also start to um, add in more strength and conditioning, um, which obviously is a big part of it as well, especially at that age. Um, because as we know, kind of from, 14 to maybe 18, everybody develops at different rates.
8: What are your hopes and aims for this season?
0: So, well, in my opinion, when you're working as a coach for any kind of youth age group, um, obviously the players' development comes first. um, And then the result, don't get me wrong, everyone loves to win, but I look at success as if we can get four or five of our girls playing in the first team in two, three years, I've done a great job. We've done a great job. Um, because quite often we see that, especially in kind of, well, under-17, under-18 football, um, not, necessarily, not necessarily the best teams produce the most um, first-team players. Um, but obviously, you know, I think every player has a desire to win, every coach has that desire to win. So I'd be lying to say the result doesn't matter, because it, it does. But, you know, we do look at player development first, and then the results come with it. If we've, but hopefully in terms of our league, um, like I said, wanted as well as possible. Um, so the way our league set up, um, there's the Premier League and the Central Warwickshire, which is the under 18. Our under 18s team are there, so we're one of the only teams to have an under 17s and an under 18 girls. So normally it goes under 16, under 18, um, but we find having two teams, obviously, it gives more girls a chance to play and also. That Obviously that physical development, because um, it is a big step up, you know, under 17 to under eighty. Um, but we're in two divisions, um, the Premier League and Division 1, um, but we do want to be kind of challenging for that first place.
8: You're also a heritage scout for the St Kitts and Nevis national team. Is that the men's and women's team and what does that role involve?
0: Yeah, so that's the men's, women's, and the under-23s, under-21s. Um, so what it involves is um, the islands itself has quite a small population, roughly about 50,000. Um, so as you can imagine, to get a really good football team from 50,000 people is quite a challenge. Um, but obviously, like a lot of, kind of Caribbean countries, a lot of players in the UK are from her- have heritage. So they have ancestry. So, for example, um, I mean, my wife is actually her background is from Saint Kitts. Um, so, for example, my son, if he or daughter, if they make into football, um, they could represent the nation. Um, and this is quite common, especially in kind of the area where I'm based as well, Burton. So, if you look at the Saint Kitts and, and Nevis national side, um, our st- our main player, for example, remains Sawyer's um, playing on Stoke at loan now. We've got players playing for Kidderminster um, in the Welsh Premier League, National League North, National League South, as well as players, you know, obviously playing on the island still and in the American leagues. So my job is mainly to um, gain contact with them, um, hopefully persuade them, um, but hopefully they should want to anyway. <laughs> but um, it is a challenge, obviously, you can imagine, especially for players who do have that really good potential because Obviously, if, if they're playing for England youth teams as well.
8: How did you get involved in all that, Sam? Um,
0: so, what I'd say to any aspiring coach or scout, LinkedIn is the best thing ever. <laughs> um, so, I contacted a player I knew, um, and obviously, my wife's connections help as well because um, I, you know, have a kind of a cultural, um, I know about the culture of the islands and the background and the area as well. Um, and then I got in contact with the one of the coaches and then had a meeting with the t- uh, technical director. Um, but there's been a new president um, in the FA now, so there's a few changes. Um, but our next international fi- fixtures, we're looking at the Stardine Nations League, um, where we're in the C division.
8: Brilliant, Sam. Look, it's great having you on. Really appreciate your time that you've given us today. Um, and hopefully we'll have you on you know, just after Christmas and um, yeah, speak to you more and get more of an update on how things have been going.
0: No, it's been a pleasure.
2: Yeah, thank you, Sam. And, and thanks, Sherelle. Always good to have a catch up with you. And uh, let's see how those League Cup games go. And we'll, uh, we'll catch up next week.
8: Absolutely. Thanks, Mark.
2: So now it's time for
1: football fans from around the world.
2: And I'm joined by Nigel Fletcher. Nigel is a Leeds United fan in Auckland, New Zealand. And Nigel, I'd like to start by asking you, why Leeds?
9: Well, I was born in Leeds. And um, as a one-club city growing up as a young kid, um, it was Leeds United, Leeds United, Leeds United. There was no other option. I'm pleased about that.
2: Uh, and your um, uh, your favourite memory in, in all that time as a, as a Leeds fan? And I, I know it goes back uh, quite a few years, to say the least.
9: Yeah, look, I'm... I'm 55 years old, so I do remember the old good times. Um, Favourite memories. Look, the first memory I have was watching on TV the 72 Cup final, the Centenary Cup final, 1-0 victory against Arsenal. David Coleman doing his fantastic commentary. Uh, I could watch that over and over again. My cousin Tim in the UK and I share that video regularly. Um, Look, match days. Match days were just always great. At Leeds whether that be a Saturday afternoon or a European night. Um, my my old man my father had a car dealership in Leeds and all the away fans used to be escorted from the train station to Ellen Road past it and sometimes you'd be scared stiff some of the Man you and Chelsea fans back then weren't the kindest um, but it was just a great atmosphere on match day and in the latter years that I was there, I've, I've lived in New Zealand 20 years, um, But I I had the privilege of going to some amazing European nights back in 2000, 2001. And um, just match days, just unbelievable. But that first memory, that 72 Cup final, that sticks out for me.
2: And and how was it then to finally get back up into the
9: Premier League last season? Unbelievably good. Um, I think being of a vintage that I am, where I do remember those good times all those years ago, and everyone tells you, oh, Leeds is a big club. Yeah, but a big club in League One and the Championship just doesn't sit right. And um, it—I haven't wavered. You know, we, I wake up in in New Zealand, on in a different time zone, and have to have to see the the results when I wake up. And um, there's been many years of pain, but I've got to say, I, I discovered a fantastic group of Leeds fans here. I looked on on Facebook and found found a group there that I didn't know about, and um, there were about eighty. 80-plus people met in a bar in central Auckland to celebrate the promotion. And it's a mixture of people of an age where they just became Leeds fans because they were good back in the 70s Um, or people who'd emigrated, but everyone in their shirts, their scarves, talking about the city of Leeds. Some have never even been there, but the vast majority were from there or had close connections. So it's it's just been great seeing the good big fixtures back it's just been superb to watch,
2: and that I watched that first game back against Liverpool, and obviously, even though you lost, what a great way to to start your return to the Premier League.
9: You know, again, a great way to return, but it was a loss. <laughs> um, losses hurt, but I think it set the tone and. Um, it set the tone for the players and the fans alike. And, and there's all these young kids around now have got Leeds as their second team, which is, which is another great thing. Cause Leeds played such an enterprising style of football last year. Um, bit of second season syndrome coming in, but last year, that exciting brand was just, just phenomenal. Great to watch. And very exciting. Yeah. And
2: favorite player in, in all that time that you've supported Leeds for you.
9: It's a long list and we haven't got time to list them. Um, but linking a couple of personal things, uh, I, I've already mentioned the 72 Cup final. Uh, it was Alan Clark that scored that diving header. Um, my father knew Clarkie and a few of the players, um, and he is actually my godfather. <laughs> uh, disclosure there. And, you know, I think when we're all kids, we pretend to be players. And uh, that diving header, I must have done thousands of times. As I say, my cousin Tim and I are, pretty close very close and we've shared a lot of memories about things like that and um yeah Alan Clark would be the one for me just uh, sublime finishing sniffer Clark um as I say he's my godfather still going on but um haven't spoken to him since I moved to New Zealand and um did
2: you ever manage to pull off the, the diving header
9: oh loads of times <laughs> loads of times of course we did
2: <laughs> and um, where finally, where will Leeds finish this season?
9: Look, I think um, I think it's going to be about 14th.
2: Well, Nigel, really enjoyed speaking to you, and uh, wish you well for the for the rest of the
9: season. Very good, thank you. Cheers, Mark. Early Doors Football Podcast for football fans worldwide. If you want to get in touch
1: with Mark and the rest of the team. You can reach them on early doors at forthenow.co.uk.